Books. 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 Hello and welcome to Didn't Read It, the podcast that definitely knows things about wine. I am your host, Grace Todd, writer, editor, book gremlin, appreciator of wine, although I have no idea what I'm talking about. No. And that'll be relevant here in a minute. (laughs) And with me today is new pal of the pod, Michael Smith. Hello. Hello, world. Hi. How are you? I'm so happy to be here, Grace. I'm so glad to have you. (laughs) I'm having a better day now because you're a part of it. Oh. It's kind of, yeah, it's gloomy out there. This is a good day to record a podcast. Yeah, it's very gray and yeah. like, I want to be cozy. We're kind of cozy in here. It's it's beautiful in here at the Black Iris. Yes, bless them. We love them. They're very good to me here. Yes. Michael, tell. would yes. you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Michael Smith, the one, the only. <laughs> um, and I'm a proud Richmonder of about 15 years been working in the food service industry, but recently, since the pandemic, have transitioned into the wine industry. So I understand you have a wine story for me today, which is kind of cool. I may or may not have chosen something with you in mind. Uh, that's, I'm, 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 my heart's a fluttering, just <laughs> thinking about what this could be. Hopefully it's not grapes of wrath. <laughs> I did think about that. I was like, is this going to be grapes of wrath? <laughs> You oh, just man. you just broke me. <laughs> <laughs> We're off the rails. Don't spit on the mic. No wine on the mics. <laughs> the grapes are angry and now they're full of alcohol. <laughs> because I was like, and then I was like, wait, is grapes of wrath about winemaking? I was like, no, it's definitely not about winemaking. <laughs> definitely not about winemaking. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm I'm a rep for a local distributor and importer of natural wines, native selections. Shout out to Sean Eubank, Amanda Carpenter. Um, Neil Heiss, we're a small team, um, and we keep it cool with low intervention, organic, biodynamic wines. We're drinking one right now. I love every wine you have ever had me taste, even if I cannot describe it intelligently. Wow, that's that's a huge compliment, as I'm sure there have been some misses. <laughs> <laughs> not with me, not yet. <laughs> well, I promise to not get drunk before the end of the story. I mean, it's fine. <laughs> it's a podcast. We'll see. We're not very fancy here. Oh, Lord. Well, before we kick off, Mm -hmm. if people are interested in finding some of those fun, funky wines, where would be a good place for them to check out? Well, if you're in Richmond, one place that I think is just super swell, and they just expanded the bar here in Jackson Ward, Penny's. Penny's Wine Shop from Lance Lemon and Kristen Gardner. Lance had a rich wine, if you're familiar with. It's like a little wine delivery service that popped up during the pandemic. Cool. And they've recently, about a year ago, moved into the former Stoplight Gelato spot right across from Gallery 5. Oh, yeah. So that's like one awesome spot that you should check out. If you're in other regions, too, like I also sell wine in Virginia Beach. Shout out to the Pink Dinghy, Love Song, some awesome restaurants there on the oceanfront. And if you're ever, oh, man, have you ever been to the Greenwood Grocery no. in Crozet? Oh. It's just like the cutest little shop. And for you being like a lover of plants, they have True. like outdoor accoutrement, really Ooh. good sandwiches, and really, really good wine and sake. Nina, 
if you're listening, you're, you rock. I'm going to have to make a field trip here soon. It's worth it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Last question mm. for people who do not live in Richmond. Sure. What is a wine that you're like really vibing on right now that people could find Ooh. hopefully anywhere? Okay. For those, you know, okay. So one producer whose wines you should be able to find readily available as there are a couple cuvées that are sold at like Whole Food locations, at least in Virginia. The producer's Folicello, producer in Emilia Romagna, who I happen to visit last April, a beautiful place situated between Modena and Bologna in north central Italy, the land of Lambrusco. And so they do a lot of sparkling reds. But what I've been really turned on by recently, they have a sparkling orange wine, Il Maserato. And it's just skinsy and textured and fresh and just the perfect wine for any occasion. Land of Lambrusco sounds like a theme park that I would very much like (laughs) to visit. (laughs) I think that's where, like, that's the theme park upon which I will retire. You know, like, I want to... That'd be great. Yeah. You know, let's just, yeah, wine wine theme park only for old people. Everyone on the roller coasters would get so sick. Yeah, no roller coasters (laughs) at this theme park. (laughs) Just like very slow versions of all the rides so that you don't spill your wine as you... Multiple lazy rivers. You spin very slowly in a teacup ride. (laughs) Very slowly. (laughs) All right. Well, now that we have said lots of nice things about wine... Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh no. Foreshadowing. <laughs> yes. A wine critic? Hmm. All right. Because we can't retire to Lambrusco land anytime soon. <laughs> I have brought you here today to discuss a short story mm-hmm. by Roald Dahl. Yes, I'm familiar with Roald Dahl. Now, in what way are you familiar with Roald Dahl? So, you know, I, I just a moment ago, literally only 30 seconds ago, glanced at the cover of the book and saw Roald Dahl and was like thinking to myself, okay, what Roald Dahl have I consumed? I think there's probably been media that I've watched and not read. Sure, 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 sure. James and the Giant Peach. Mm-hmm. The Witches, mm-hmm. both iterations, although I may have read The Witches when I was a kid, definitely scared the shit out of me. <laughs> uh, and I'm trying to think, I'm like, what else What else is there that's for old doll? I'm missing a big one. Matilda. Oh, I, you know, I never read that. But there is the movie. I don't think I ever saw the movie. Really? You know? Oh, it's a delight. I highly recommend it, like, even, as a, even as a grown-up. Like 1994, what was that little girl's name? Was she in Harriet the Spy, too? No, that was some other little girl. No, but... Um, that oh was God. Michelle Trachtenberg. Yeah, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, Matilda, she was so... Co- she's she's still so cool. Where she's is a, she now? She's a writer and journalist now. Oh, cool. I, like, want her to be my friend. Oh, she was in Miracle on 34th Street. Yes, also that. Um, <laughs> my little, like, seven-year-old brain oh is, God, like, spinning right na- now. Matilda. Okay, yeah, and she had powers, right? She was, like... Mara Wilson. Mara Wilson. Okay, I would have never pulled that out of thin air. Now, have you ever read anything that Roald Dahl wrote for adults? So, no, but <laughs> I, I, I mean, just like Dr. Seuss, right? They, these guys all had just six senses of humor and would write for Hustler and Playboy and whatnot, right? Yes. Oh, Lord. So Roald Dahl <laughs> kind of pivoted to writing for kids when he was a little older. Okay. This is a short story that he wrote and was published in The New Yorker very early in his career. Okay. So like, how old is he? Okay. He's in his late 20s, early 30s. Okay. He's just gotten out of the Royal Air Force after World War II. This is published within a couple of years of the war ending originally. And then this, he winds up putting it out in a collection of short stories called Someone Like You 
1948. Okay. And so like right after the war. Yes. And so this is all this is all short stories. They're all for adults. And today we're going to talk about the first story in the collection, which is called Taste. Taste. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> There were six of us to dinner that night at Mike Schofield's house in London. Mike and his wife and daughter, my wife and I, and a man called Richard Pratt. Richard Pratt was a famous gourmet. He was president of a small society known as the Epicures, and each month he circulated privately to its members a pamphlet on food and wines. He organized dinners where sumptuous dishes and rare wines were served. He refused to smoke for fear of harming his palate. And when discussing a wine, he had a curious, rather droll habit of referring to it as though it were a living being. A prudent wine, he would say. Rather diffident and evasive. <laughs> Sorry. I've wanted to laugh this whole time, and I've been holding it in. And I'm like, is there a point upon which I can break? Because that was already, I have so much to say. <laughs> Oh, wait. Richard, Mr. Richard Pratt. <laughs> Mr. Richard Pratt. It says, or a good humored wine, benevolent and cheerful, slightly obscene, perhaps, oh my but nonetheless good humored. <laughs> <laughs> okay, me and Richard Pratt have so much in common. <laughs> and I hate to admit it, but I can't wait to hear this. I was going to okay. say, don't don't say that too early. I know. I know. Th- I know he's probably is going to be our antagonist and uh i'm already relating to him hard so let's go (laughs) so the story is narrated Mm. by a sort of third party who's not really involved in the action our narrator is just a friend of these two men mike Schofield, richard pratt okay he goes over for dinner and mike has mike and his wife have put together this lavish dinner party, which they always do when Richard Pratt comes over. Of course. Because they want to impress him. Of course. Because he's he runs the Epicurean Club. Exactly. <laughs> okay. And the other reason that they have to splash out is that Mike and Richard have a running game they play. <laughs> it says... As we sat down, I remembered that on both Richard Pratt's previous visits, Mike had played a little betting game with him over the claret, (laughs) challenging him to name its breed and its vintage. Pratt had replied that that should not be too difficult, provided it was one of the great years. (laughs) Mike had then bet him a case of the wine in question that he could not do it. Pratt had accepted and had won both times. Mm The blind. They're blinding each other. Uh Uh-huh. Well, it's one directional. Sure. Yes, yes. Pratt's already won this game twice. Okay. The narrator is telling us right at the get Mm -hmm. that he is, he's stealing himself Mm -hmm. because this game is going to get played again. Got it. And he says specifically, Mike was quite willing to lose the bet in order to prove that his wine was good enough to be recognized. And Pratt, for his part, seemed to take a grave restrained pleasure in displaying his knowledge. (laughs) Pompous ass. Okay, so I'm going to immediately retract what I said. (laughs) I am not a pompous ass. I do not run any Epicurean clubs for those who are listening and do not know me. (laughs) 
<laughs> I just like to talk about wine sometimes as if they have personalities. That's how I really related. Well, see, that's endearing. Yeah. But the way that he describes the wines is just going to get more uncomfortable oh, as God. this story goes on. Jesus Christ. Okay, let's, let's, I'm, I'm ready. So they're sitting down. It's time for the first course. And Michael, Mike, Mm -hmm. leans over to our narrator and explains that the first wine they're going to have is a Giersley? Would would you spell? G-E-I-E-R-S-L-A-Y? Sure. (laughs) I don't know what that is. Maybe it's not popular anymore. Sure. That might require a Google search unless there's going to be some revealed here. I'm I'm actually very intrigued now. Well, Giersley, it says, was a tiny village in the Moselle. Almost unknown outside of Germany. Okay, well, there you go. And so Mike is telling our narrator that he personally visited Giersley and coaxed them into giving him some wine that it's never given to outsiders. Of course. This has never even stepped foot in the Americas. And he's... Until now. And he he confides this very quietly in our narrator, but he doesn't say it to Richard Pratt because he doesn't want to, like, spoil. Of course. He's so excited about this. Mm -hmm. And then he raises his voice so that everybody at the table can hear him. And he says, great thing about Moselle. It's the perfect wine to serve before a claret. A lot of people serve a Rhine wine instead, but that's because they don't know any better. A Rhine wine will kill a delicate claret. You know that? It's barbaric to serve a Rhine before a claret. (laughs) But a Moselle, a Moselle is exactly right. Okay. All right. I'm ready. (laughs) I'm sorry. Who said that last statement? That's Mike. Okay. Okay. So Mike Mike is hosting and he's, he's desperately trying to show off his knowledge. Okay. This is who he is. Okay. And the reason that he is so uptight about all of this Uh is that he's a rich stockbroker who is self-conscious about his sort of lack of culture okay you know i know the type (laughs) he's such a tech bro (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> is what okay. I'm getting out of it. He's a we ni- have a Zuckerberg he's, here. Yeah, he's a 1940s tech. Well, not even, <laughs> he's not a Zuckerberg. He's like a mid-level tech bro. Think oh, like, a, okay. like a mid-level Google exec yeah. who makes a ton of money uh-huh. but isn't special or famous. Got it. Yeah, exactly. And has no idea about anything cultural and is just totally putting on airs. Yeah, he's described as... Mike Schofield was an amiable middle-aged man, but he was a stockbroker. To be precise, he was a jobber in the stock market. And like a number of his kind, he seemed to be somewhat embarrassed, almost ashamed, to find that he had made so much money with so slight a talent. (laughs) In his heart, he knew that he was not really much more than a bookmaker, an unctuous, infinitely respectable, secretly unscrupulous bookmaker. And he knew that his friends knew it too. (laughs) (laughs) everyone can see through you dude and it's like Roald Dahl's capacity for that very quick characterization you're just like I know exactly who this guy is totally and he's a bummer yeah I I hate to say that I you know so I do a lot of public tastings not just here in Richmond Mm -hmm. but with people in Charlottesville and Virginia Beach and in Norfolk and there's absolutely that person who wants to come and play stump stump the wine tasting guy you know or like let me let me flex about what i know and you're like hey we're tasting things from france not from napa i don't know (laughs) know why you're telling me all this like 
And it's, yeah, just desperation to be like, this is what I know. I had never thought about people coming out and trying to one up you or or which just is such a weird instinct yeah well yeah one up but it's more yeah it's more of just like a yeah it's like a measuring competition <laughs> i can't say that on the podcast gross <laughs> but you know what i mean like it's like you know how a, much so much i know a corkscrew measuring competition <laughs> if you yeah, will yes <laughs> of course now all i can picture is ducks <laughs> 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 oh, All right. That went off the rails. All right. <laughs> that's that's what you're here for. <laughs> so they're at dinner. Mm-hmm. The Moselle comes out mm-hmm. and our narrator describes Mike as sitting there trying to look cool, mm-hmm. like trying to look unconcerned. He's having a good time. Mm-hmm. But every few bites, he's darting these little glances down the table at Richard Pratt. I know it, yes. Waiting for him to taste the wine mm-hmm. with this kind of girlish longing. Mm-hmm. It says, I could almost feel him waiting for the moment when Pratt would take his first sip <laughs> and look up from his glass with a smile of pleasure, of astonishment, perhaps even of wonder. And then there would be a discussion and Mike would tell him about the village of Gearslay. <laughs> because, of course, he's never heard of this place. He doesn't know. So, he's going he's gonna to get it wrong. <laughs> and Mike wants to do the thing that you just said, right? He wants to flex. Yeah. He wants to show off. Totally. But Richard Pratt is not paying any attention to the food or the wine. Hmm. What he is doing is small talk headlocking Mike's 18-year-old daughter, Louise. What? Mm-hmm. Okay, this is getting gross. Oh, just wait. <laughs> what? He puts her in verbal headlock. So wait, when you say 18, she's graduated high school. It just says she's 18. 18 we don't year have, old. We don't have any other context. She oh, is 18 years old. God. She still lives at home, I guess. Sure. Goes to these parties. It says, <laughs> he was half turned towards her, smiling at her, telling her so far as I could gather some story about a chef in a Paris restaurant. As he spoke, he leaned closer and closer to her, seeming in his eagerness almost to impinge upon her. And the poor girl leaned as far as she could away from him, nodding politely, rather desperately, and looking not at his face, but at the topmost button of his dinner jacket. This poor thing. I know. She just wants to run away. Poor Louise is not having a great night so far. No, where's her eject button? (laughs) Someone rescue Louise. Holy shit. It's important to... I feel I should remind you right at this moment that it is the 1940s. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, I know. I, I, get, I get it. No, I, I just meant in the context of everything to come, just remind yourself every once oh, in a while okay. that this is the 1940s. Okay, now also I should, I should mention to the audience that I have, for whatever reason, now that this guy has become especially nefarious he's starting to look like the food critic from ratatouille <laughs> in my head <laughs> that's what he looks like right it's the food the food critic critic from ratatouille but like as a sex pest <laughs> yeah yeah like but yeah like really gray kind of like if you were to take uh one of the what's the adams family guy <laughs> Sorry. he like adams family ratatouille food critic sure, yeah 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 i like th- this is a Oof. this is a good mashup yeah and really creepy. We'll gross. get the casting notes for when they turn this into a short film. Of course. Man. Okay. Gross. Ew. Yeah. And 
the maid comes around to take everyone's plates, even mm-hmm. though Richard Pratt is the only one who hasn't finished eating. Mm-hmm. And when he realizes that the maid's about to clear his plate, uh-huh. he eats all of his food really fast uh-huh. and then drinks the wine in two solid mouthfuls. Uh-huh. And Mike is crushed. Just fucking pissed. You didn't even smell the wine. You... Heartbroken. <sighs> but he manages to get himself together. <laughs> he takes a deep breath. Uh-huh. And then he announces that it's time for the claret. Okay. So th- this that actually answers my questions. They're only being, he's only having to guess the red wine. Okay. This little game that they play is specifically about claret for whatever okay. reason. Okay. But just probably because that's the style that's popular at the time, you know? Yeah. I must. Was claret super trendy in the 40s? Do you know? So claret, as far as I understand, it's simply a meritage blend. It's a Bordeaux blend. It, it comes from, it means, it translates to like clear red. And so the idea is that it's a, a balanced Bordeaux style wine. Okay. So it's probably going to be a blend. I, I feel like the term claret, and again, I, I don't know this i'm not a wine scholar friends i do have no certification i am not a psalm for the record people (laughs) do not at me but but i'm pretty sure clarets can be especially like american clarets can be really be anything but generally it's going to be based in like the classic bordeaux blend merlot cabernet cap franc okay that Mm -hmm. That makes sense but yeah it's a it's a medium-bodied clear red wine a wine that's not too heavy i'm just wondering if they were like, I remember, and again, I don't know anything about wine, but I remember that there was a while, was it like the 90s when like everything was Merlot? Everyone yeah. was super into Merlot and, for a while. Until Sideways. Exactly. Yes. And then it was Pinot Noir. Yes. I'm wondering if in the late 40s, Claret was mm. super trendy. I think it probably was. That would I mean, make sense. Because Bordeaux wines were, they're the most, you know, were the most exported, most popular wines in the world. Right. So that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. They're everywhere. And if you're a member of the English Nouveau Riche. <laughs> exactly. So Mike announces that it's time for the claret, <laughs> which he has to go retrieve because it's been breathing in his study where it's been acquiring room temperature for 24 hours. Okay, sure. On top of a filing cabinet in the spot in his house that Richard Pratt helped him pick out that is the perfect <laughs> wine resting. Uh, okay. <laughs> For 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 it's while it's decanting, presumably, decanting and also it says specifically acquiring room temperature. Yeah, and he, our narrator says, "But why the study?" And Mike says, "Yeah, it's the best place in the house. Richard helped me choose it the last time he was here. <laughs> a good draft-free spot in a room with an even temperature." Okay, because I'm, I'm I'm like surely he has a cellar. You know, you'd think that you would just pull it from the cellar, but I guess, no, you, we're going through an extra step here. Yes. We're making sure that this isn't served at cellar temperature, that it's had proper time to come to room temp. This is the perfect spot. Okay. I, I, I'm I, seeing what they're doing here. Yes. It's very fussy. And also, this is the kind of man who has his wine friend walk him around the house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To find the super special place. Without the draft. Where his wine can acquire the perfect room temperature. Ugh. Yuck. (laughs) It says, The thought of another wine to play with had restored his humor, and he hurried out of the door to return a minute later more slowly, walking softly, holding in both hands a wine basket in which a dark bottle lay. Mm -hmm. The label was out of sight, facing downwards. Now, he cried as he came toward the table. What about this one, Richard? You'll never name this one. (laughs) He should have said, what about this one, dick? (laughs) 
I really was hoping that was where, you know. That would have been good, but no. <laughs> all right. We're not getting that kind of low-hanging fruit from, uh, from Roald Dahl. From Dull. Roald, all right. He thought about it. So they start <laughs> debating whether or not Richard Pratt is going to be able to guess the wine. Mike keeps insisting, you'll never get it in a million years. And Richard Pratt keeps saying, you know, of course I will. Absolutely. And as this conversation goes on, the narrator begins to become increasingly uneasy with Richard Pratt's whole demeanor. Mm-hmm. It says, to me, there was something strange about his drawling and his boredom. Between the eyes, a shadow of something evil, and in his bearing, an intentness that gave me a faint sense of unease as I watched him. Hmm. He's affecting boredom, mm-hmm. but he's actually being very intense about all mm-hmm. of this. So they go back and forth. They agree to a bet. And then Pratt asks Mike if he would like to increase the terms of the bet. Mm. So previously, they had been betting for a case of the wine itself. Sure. And Mike, at first, balks. He's like, a case of wine is plenty. Mm-hmm. But Pratt is being so bored and disinterested that it's starting to needle him now mm-hmm. it's it's not fun anymore yeah it catches him he's like no no okay i, I need you to guess this and up, up the stakes and pratt needles him for a little while until he eventually agrees to increase the bet mm-hmm. you weak weak thing mike they go back and forth pratt goads him into saying that he can name anything he wants as the terms of the bet mm. Yikes. His daughter. It's going to be his daughter. It's his daughter. <laughs> oh, my God. This is gross. Oh, fuck. So finally, Ugh. the back and forth is kind of hard to read because it's all dialogue and that never translates super well on the show. Uh-huh. But finally, it comes down to Pratt nodded. And again, the little smile moved the corners of his lips. <sighs> and then quite slowly, looking at Mike all the time, he said, I want you to bet me the hand of your daughter in marriage. Gross. So gross. What a fucking skis. And Louise, of course, is immediately like, no. <laughs> That's her daughter, right? Yeah, Louise is the 18-year-old daughter whose immediate reaction is, no, that's not funny. Yeah. She says, look here, daddy. (laughs) That's not funny at all. Yeah, stand up for yourself, Louise. And her mother, funnily enough, well, not funnily enough, her mother right off the bat says, they're only joking. Uh Uh-huh. And Pratt immediately says, I am not joking. I'm very serious. Mike tries to hedge by saying, it's not a question of going back on my offer, old man. It's a no bet anyway, because you can't match the stake. You yourself don't happen to have a daughter to put up against mine in case you lose. And if you had, I wouldn't want to marry her. <laughs> okay. Which? I think you're missing something here. That's, that's, not, <laughs> that's not the best reason I can think of to not do this bet. Yeah. Okay. But what? At, at oh. least he's thinking of a reason, I guess. <laughs> sure. All right, Mike. Man, you're an imbecile. Okay. Okay, Mike. Sure. Yeah. What? And his wife's response is, I'm glad of that, dear. <laughs> Poor thing. Oh, man. But Pratt comes back and says, what about my house? Oh, my God. There's a counteroffer. <laughs> and Mike says, which one? Because, of course, Richard Pratt has two houses. Yeah, one in, one in Paris, right? And Pratt, <laughs> right. Well, there's a country house and a oh, city house, sure, of course. Sure, of course. And Pratt says, why not both? Oh, my God. 
And Louise jumps back in, of course, to be like, the fuck? (laughs) I'm still here. (laughs) I'm 18. Somebody send me to college, please. (laughs) And this is when... So, okay. You know what? I'm just gonna... I'm just gonna read it. (laughs) Poor Louise. Now, Daddy, she cried. Don't be absurd. It's too silly for words. I refuse to be bedded on like this. Quite right, dear, her mother said. Stop it at once, Mike, and sit down and eat your food. (laughs) Mike ignored her. He looked over at his daughter and he smiled. A slow, fatherly, protective smile. But in his eyes, suddenly, there glimmered a little triumph. You know, he said, smiling as he spoke. You know, Louise, we ought to think about this a bit. Now stop it, Daddy. I refuse even to listen to you. Why, I've never heard anything so ridiculous in my life. No, seriously, my dear. Just wait a minute and hear what I have to say. And they go back and forth, and he he starts (laughs) trying to convince her by saying, I am certain, I am beyond certain. There is no way, there's no way Richard Pratt is going to guess what wine this is. Uh Because... Sure, he might get the region, he might get even like the the larger area, but this particular region is full of hundreds of tiny vineyards. Mm-hmm. He'll never ever in a million years mm-hmm. get the vineyard. Mm-hmm. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. It cannot be done. Mm-hmm. And I'll make you rich. You'll have two houses. I know. Wow. Yikes. I hate this. <laughs> <laughs> And she says, she insists that there's no way he can be sure of it, sure of that. Mm-hmm. And he says, I'm telling you I can. <laughs> Though I say it myself, I understand quite a bit about this wine business, you know. And anyway, heaven's alive, girl. I'm your father, and you don't think I'd let you in for something you didn't want, do you? I'm trying to make you some money. <laughs> yeah, put it on her. Oh, my God. And she says a little bit later, she says... But I don't want two large houses, Daddy. <laughs> she's like the anti-Veruca Salt. She's, she is. She's like, um, please, can't we just keep our nuclear family together? <laughs> I, I don't want to be sold to the wine man, Daddy. Exactly. <laughs> please don't sell me to the wine man, Daddy. Holy shit. Okay. Weird. And he keeps pushing and pushing and he's like... You'll get the house. I'll sell them. And then you'll be rich and you'll be independent for the rest of your life. What is Richard Pratt doing now? Like, is he he just like sitting like weird, like hands in his lap awkwardly at the table? Yes. He's just waiting it out. Gross. Yeah. He's not. He's. What a ski. Because he he knows he's got it. He's got it. He's got Mike. He knows who Mike is. Yeah. I mean, like Mike is the one who's showing weakness here right now. Yeah. And finally... After he pushes and pushes and pushes, it says, poor Louise. She says, oh, daddy, must I? (laughs) And he says, I'm making you a fortune. So come on now. What do you say, Louise? All right. For the last time, she hesitated. Then she gave a helpless little shrug of the shoulders and said, oh, all right, then. Just so long as you swear there's no danger of losing. (laughs) What are the odds? And then the tasting commences. Oh, my God. Um, that that requires another sip of wine. Yeah, we need to take a second. <laughs> so if you remember from reading Roald Dahl as a child, he has a particular talent for the grotesque. 
mm-hmm. and for describing things in ways that are wildly off-putting. Yeah. And we are about to go through so many passages of Richard Pratt tasting this wine. And it is some of the most off-putting prose I have ever read in my life. Wow. Okay. And he's just thinking about the wine? It's... Okay. It's okay. describing him doing the tasting. Yuck. Oh, and God. So if you are out there listening <laughs> and you're hanging out with us while you're like eating lunch. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, yikes. And it's not It's not like gross out. It's not like potty. It's just, yeah. it's just so intensely off-putting. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I'm very excited to hear this. The whole section, the whole tasting section opens with a lingering description of Pratt. The man was about 50 years old, and he did not have a pleasant face. Somehow, it was all mouth. Mouth and lips. The full, wet lips of the professional gourmet. The lower lip hanging downward in the center. A pendulous, permanently open taster's lip. Shaped open to receive the rim of a glass or a morsel of food. Like a keyhole, I thought, watching it. His mouth is like a large, wet keyhole. Wow, that's an incredible description. Okay. He starts sniffing the wine, and it says, He closed his eyes, and now the whole top half of his body, the head and neck and chest, seemed to become a kind of huge, sensitive smelling machine, receiving, filtering, analyzing the message from the sniffing nose. (laughs) Mike and Louise and Mike's wife are all just sitting just watching (laughs) it's a spectacle but mike is trying very hard to look casual Mm -hmm. for at least a minute the smelling process continued then without opening his eyes or moving his head pratt lowered the glass to his mouth and tipped in almost half the contents he paused his mouth full of wine getting in the first taste then he permitted some of it to trickle down his throat and i saw his adam's apple move as it passed by but most of it he retained in his mouth And now, without swallowing again, he drew in through his lips a thin breath of air which mingled with the fumes of the wine in the mouth and passed on down to his his lungs. He held the breath, blew it out through his nose, and finally began to roll the wine around under the tongue and chewed it, actually chewed it with his (laughs) teeth as though it were bread. (laughs) It was a solemn, impressive performance, and I must say he did it well. (laughs) That's the narrator saying that. This right? is the narrator uh-huh. who's just watching all of this happen. Okay. And the narrator's not doing any. The narrator no. doesn't yeah. insert himself. He just doesn't. Total third party. He's editorializing, clearly, uh-huh. but he's not. He, he doesn't speak. Uh-huh. At no point is he even conversing with these people, really. Wow. And then we get into. <laughs> he runs. He runs a pink tongue over his lips. And then he says, mm, yes, a very interesting little wine, gentle and gracious almost feminine in the aftertaste. There was an excess of saliva in his mouth, and as he spoke, he spat an occasional bright speck of it onto the table. <laughs> and he starts he starts trying to pare it down, right? And he's he, uh-huh. he keeps going on about how he needs to be very, very careful. And he's describing this wine, and I'm just going to... I can't read the whole thing, but he says... Oh, let's see. Blah, wet lip smile. Um, so he starts describing the wine this is a very gentle wine demure and bashful in the first taste emerging shyly but quite graciously in the second 
a little arch perhaps in the second taste, and a little naughty also, teasing the tongue with a trace, just a trace of tannin. Then in the aftertaste, delightful, consoling and feminine, with a certain blithely generous quality that one associates only with the wines of the commune of St. Julien. Mm. Unmistakably, this is a St. Julien. <sighs> He's made his guess. And it's it's all well that's that's just the region we're not even done oh okay this is gonna take (laughs) sorry this takes forever and it's so he's narrowing it down tense like the tension is almost unbearable okay so he's that was step one everyone is just like on the edge of their seat and well and if you if you think about the words that he was just using they're all not just sexual but they could just as easily be applied for example, to an 18-year-old girl. You know, I didn't... Um, this is maybe just because I'm kind of an idiot. I didn't even <laughs> put that together. I honestly... I And maybe that's because I also t- spend a lot of time describing wine. And like when he said naughty, I was like, ooh, I need to use that word more. Because... <laughs> like to, distri- to describe wine. I wasn't even thinking about the 18-year-old girl. Oh, God. Okay. Whoa. And I bet hearing that passage again, if you're in your car or whatever, you're listening to this, just rewind if, you, if you're if you dumb like me. And then think about that as being a nubile 18-year-old. Oh, God. And the tension is high. And so because the tension is so high, Louise goes to light a cigarette because it's the 1940s and everyone smokes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And he whips around and snaps at her. He, de- he demands that she not smoke at the table because he can't abide it because it's of disgusting. Oh, of course. This is this is Pratt, correct? This is Pratt. As he's tasting because he Lash- doesn't... Well, but lashing out at Louise in her own home uh-huh. for lighting a cigarette at the table. And he, when he's about to abduct her. When he's about to abduct... <laughs> so it's, he's, he's already uh-huh. kind of taking that extra little step of control. Of course. And she resentfully but still quietly complies and puts her cigarette out yikes while he finishes his performance he goes on a whole thing about trying to establish the growth whether it's a first growth or second growth or etc vineyard yep he's making a meal of this right he's really putting on a performance here totally he he should i'm envisioning that he knows exactly what this is and he has just taken his time Getting getting around to those parts. Go and on. then <laughs> he pauses. He takes up his glass. And it says, he held the rim against that sagging, pendulous lower lip of his. Then I saw the tongue shoot out, pink and narrow, the tip of it dipping into the wine, withdrawing swiftly again, a repulsive sight. When he lowered the glass, his eyes remained closed, the face concentrated, only the lips moving sliding over each other like two pieces of wet, spongy rubber. <laughs> Yuck. So he, you know, he goes, there it is! And he starts going on about tannins, and I'll, I'll spare you until he finally gets to, well, let me think. It is not a Bechevel, and it is not a Talbot, and yet, yet it is so close to both of them, so close, that the vineyard must be almost in between. Now which could that be? He hesitated, and we waited, watching his face. <laughs> Everyone, even Mike's wife, was watching him now. I heard the maid put down the dish of vegetables on the sideboard behind me, gently, so as not to disturb the silence. Ah, he cried. I have it. Yes, I think I have it. 
For the last time, he sipped the wine. Then, still holding the glass up near his mouth, he turned to Mike and he smiled, a slow, silky smile. And he said, You know what this is? This is the little chateau Brenner du Cru. Mike sat tight, not moving. And the year, 1934. We all looked at Mike, waiting for him to turn the bottle around in its basket and show the label. I'm waiting. <laughs> and so they kind of, Mike, Mike starts hedging for time. And mm -hmm. Louise finally pipes up and says, come on, daddy, turn it round and let's have a peek. I want my two houses. Oh, no. Poor Louise, honey. Mike goes very pale. <laughs> and his wife asks him what's the matter. Uh, and he says, keep out of this, Margaret, will you please? Oh, no. Daddy, Louise cries. But daddy, you don't mean to say he's guessed it. Now stop worrying, Mike says. There's nothing to worry about. Mike hasn't overtly conceded defeat, but he says... I'll tell you what, Richard, I think you and I better slip off into the next room and have a little chat. <laughs> I don't want a little chat, Pratt said. All I want is to see the label on that bottle. Mm -hmm. He knew he was a winner now. He had the bearing, the quiet arrogance of a winner. And I could see that he was prepared to become thoroughly nasty if there was any trouble. What are you waiting for? He said to Mike. Go on and turn it around. Then this happened. The maid... The tiny, erect figure of the maid, in her white and black uniform, was standing beside Richard Pratt, holding something out in her hand. I believe these are yours, sir, she said. Pratt glanced around, saw the pair of thin, horn-rimmed spectacles that she held out to him, and for a moment he hesitated. Are they? Perhaps they are. I don't know. Yes, sir. They're yours. The maid was an elderly woman, nearer seventy than sixty, a faithful family retainer of many years' standing. She put the spectacles down on the table beside him. Without thanking her, Pratt took them up and slipped them into his top pocket, behind the white handkerchief. But the maid didn't go away. She remained standing beside and slightly behind Richard Pratt, and there was something so unusual in her manner and in the way she stood there, small, motionless, and erect, that I for one found myself watching her with a sudden apprehension. Her old gray face had a frosty, determined look. The lips were compressed, the little chin was out, and the hands were clasped together tight before her. You left them in Mr. Schofield's study, she said. Her voice was unnaturally, deliberately polite. <gasps> On top of the green filing cabinet in his study, sir, mm. when you happened to go in there by yourself before dinner. You got caught, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> it took a few moments for the full meaning of her words to penetrate, and in the silence that followed, I became aware of Mike and how he was slowly drawing himself up in his chair, and the color coming to his face, mm -hmm. and the eyes opening wide, and the curl of the mouth, and the dangerous little patch of whiteness beginning to spread around the area of his nostrils. Now, Michael, his wife said, keep calm now, Michael, dear. <laughs> keep calm. <laughs> The end. The end. So does he kill Pratt? <laughs> <laughs>
Is there now a murder after dinner? Oh, that's so juicy. So that's the story. What did it say? Frosty and what describing the maid? Oh, the maid. Let's see. Frosty and determined. Determined. That like I kind of need that tattooed on me now. <laughs> Frosty and determined. I love her. Who, who knew she would be the like the savior? Cheers to the maid. I love the maid. She Cheers. doesn't even get a name, but bless I, her. Yeah, closer to seventy than sixty. I, I I love her. She's cool. Well, what a cool story. And so that's that's taste, which taste. There's a lot uh there's a lot happening there. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. With gender and class and yeah. tech bros and yeah. wine obsessives. Yeah. And perverts. So yeah, I'm like is uh, is he really just truly putting on airs? Like, at, at what point, where does Pratt's knowledge end? You know what I mean? Like, uh, like if he's having to cheat in these situations, or is he just making sure that he can get, get the girl? You know what I mean? Like, is he really just that skeezy that he's like, I can't lose this bet? Or, like, or is he actually, like... You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think that's one of the questions that this story is really asking is whether all of their affectations around wine are just like a house of cards. Yeah, exactly. Like for both of them. Do you... do either of them actually know what they're talking about at all? Or is this yeah. just a, a bunch of men puffing each other up so that they can feel better about themselves? Oh, wait, is that the entire wine world? <laughs> Did you just like... Did you just like completely pull the veil back on the entire wine world? You said and, it, not me. Yeah. And then you put one of the like local distributors and reps on the air to be like, you're right. It's all a facade. We know nothing. No one knows what's <laughs> happening. We're really just in it so we can win bets and win. Steal each other's children. Yeah. Casually. Oh, yuck. Okay. Wow. <sighs> so much to unpack. I feel... I, I feel a little betrayed. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> totally kidding. Totally kidding. This is this is wild. Okay. There there are a few things that I think are kind of worth teasing out. One of them obviously is this dinner party functions as a pretty good microcosm of the sort of patriarchal dynamic writ large, especially in the forties. Yeah. This is two men who are making a stupid bet. Yep. Over something they don't understand as well as they think. Yep. It's rigged. Yeah. Only one of them knows it. And what they are betting with and betting on. Yeah. Is the. As property. The literal body uh-huh. of their, of this man's daughter. Yeah. And his wife is so well trained already yeah. that she doesn't offer any kind of real pushback. No, she really is complicit in the whole thing. I was reading an article about it and it was arguing essentially that the that Mrs. Schofield doesn't push back because there is an extent to which learning that men will do things like this to you is a coming of age. Oh, she has to learn this at some point. Uh-huh. And so one wow. of one of the things that's happening here is kind of Louise is kind of becoming a woman. Mhm. Mhm. In a really 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 horrible way. <laughs> up way poor louise okay so i'm like i keep coming back to the maid yeah because it's like there's five characters in the story okay there's six characters in the story including the narrator i mean I, 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 the narrator might have a wife there right 
The narrator does have a wife there, but we never see or hear from her. She's never talked about. So it's it's how many is then five people at dinner plus the maid or six? Sorry, I think I'm, I'm like, it, I'm, it says it's yeah six because but because it's like really the three there's three women, you know what I mean, and two men. You know, it's like the women in the story outnumber the, the men. They do, yeah. So I'm just I'm, I'm like interested in kind of this. They they kind of mention about this woman being frosty and older, and I'm like, what is, is there like a a wisdom? Is like is the I don't know. I feel like the the maid saves the day. The you maid, know, the maid is the moral compass, and, which is really interesting because right, she's she's hired help, and she's the lowest on the bar, right? She, yes, or in terms of class, and she's the only one with a with enough of a moral compass to do something. Yeah, which is. Yeah. Again, if you're thinking about this as as skewering a very particular kind of rich, unprincipled, cultureless, mm-hmm. nouveau riche. Yeah. He he has no moral compass. He's very you can manipulate him very easily with money or with yeah. needling his pride. Yeah. And the only person who's willing to do anything yeah. is a maid who could very who could just as easily have gotten in trouble for exactly. meddling. Yeah, like yeah. that wasn't necessarily like a safe course of action for her. Not at all. And in in the description of her makes her sound like she is very uh, very sure of what she's about to do, right? Mhm. Frosty and determined. She seems to be the only person who genuinely cares about poor Louise. Yeah. Yes, and it's been like I love that I love this idea of like her she's been paying attention to all of this the whole night too. You yep. know, like in the background. Like, I mean, she comes up at one point because he's not eating. He hasn't eaten his food. Yeah. And she's like kind of politely like. Mm-hmm. And and I didn't. <laughs> and it's funny because I, I didn't read them all for time, obviously. But she appears fairly early. She's serving the whole dinner. Yeah. And there are all of these little. When you, when you reread the story, having mm-hmm. read the conclusion, you realize just how present the maid is. Yeah. And how even the narrator doesn't register her as another person in the room yeah she's not a human no until the very end until the very end and then you get the description of her and and that's the first time he sees her Uh uh-huh yes right yes yeah because i mean like even even when she's clearing the food she's behind him Mm -hmm. you know she's not real (laughs) she's the help she's imaginary yeah i mean who whomst among us has not heard some wild going down while we were waiting on someone's table. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yes. Did you ever overhear someone's daughter being auctioned off when you were... It hasn't been that bad. <laughs> but but um, I will not name this politician on a podcast that's <laughs> broadcast throughout Richmond and Virginia. Who? But I've definitely seen things and you're like, oh, God. <laughs> Which is wildly appropriate to this story, actually. Oh, my God. Yeah, it is. Wow. Yeah. I have no idea how much of that's going to wind up staying in the final product. Oh, please do not. We'll see. All right. Oh, Okay, so wine snobbery also. And let's talk a little bit about, is it all a facade? No. No, people. It's not all a facade. But there's absolutely embellishments, dare I say, that you have to make just to keep it exciting. 
I don't know. I feel like talking about wine, it, it allows for a lot of embellishments because wine is more than just, I'm going to, here I am. I'm going to go on this like flowery. No, it's great. No, no. <laughs> as long as you don't try to buy anyone's teenage children. <laughs> But no, it's like, there's no, okay, here, here's what I guess I'm trying to say. Like, there's no right or wrong way to talk about wine. I think like a lot of people hear that. You know, when you're tasting things, it's like, you know, there's no wrong wrong answers, right? But I, for people who, like, work in wine, you know, yeah, like, we, we're going to try and connect with you on your level. So, like, sure. to, you know, and there's a lot of people who come to wine at various levels. And so, I don't know, I absolutely will embellish or, you know, uh pretend maybe I know a little more than I actually do but it's like I don't know there's a lot of wine out there and it's very difficult to keep it all straight you know sure well and it's also I think selling anything is really storytelling a 100% at the end of the day and you you know at the same time the words that this man uses to describe wine are unforgivable yeah Well, yeah, pull some of those up. I mean, they... I mean, he's he calls it. Um, <laughs> let's see. I'm trying to find some of my favorites. Unforgivable, really? That's kind of harsh. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, I'm ready now. That I'm going to listen through the through the lens of he's he's implying that this is a 18. I don't know. I girl. mean, he calls he calls a wine. Let's see some of the better naughty. There's the whole like paragraph that's clearly also about Louise, but he also he calls a wine tender, wistful imperious not the same wine these are just different different. um then he uses some words i'm a little more used to pith dusty yeah yeah uh and then he goes into the whole list with in fact i'll just read it again for Uh, good measure okay sure this is a very gentle wine demure and bashful in the first taste emerging shyly but quite graciously in the second a little arch, perhaps, Ooh. in the second taste, and a little naughty also, <laughs> teasing the tongue with a trace, just a trace of tannin. Then, in the aftertaste, delightful, consoling, and feminine, <laughs> with a certain blithely generous quality that one associates with only with the wines of the commune of St. Julian. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's, yeah that's obnoxious I, I completely get it. Like, I, yeah, I don't go that far, I guess. But I do love flowery language. I do like sometimes talking about uh, wines as if they have a personality. So it's like I totally understand and get that. And yeah, like like you were saying, like, that's good sales, right? Yeah. Persuasive descriptions. But it's fun when it's fun. It's not fun when you're doing it to be a dick. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> and just, I cannot, I will never get over and, you know, actually, you tell me. I'm mm. assuming this is not a standard wine tasting maneuver. Okay. I will never get over the lizard tongue thing at the end. The, like, slurping. Yeah, yeah, That's like, kind of weird. Who who does that? Wine tasting, it's not It's not a beautiful process. No, like, it's pretty gross. It's pretty gross. And there's a lot of, yeah, yeah. So it's like, yeah. Oh, that description, though, of, like, it, it, it was it, it was fitting. It, I could feel how gross Pratt was by that description. Yeah. Ugh. And now, and now, Mike Schofield's just blown up his whole domestic life. Yeah, yeah. His daughter is never gonna forgive him. I don't think. No. And so, what? Is, how does the what does the wife say to finish it off? She she's trying to get, convince him. She's trying. She's telling him to keep calm. Basically, oh, yeah. the the implication is that Mike may or may not be about to just go beat the ever loving 
out of Richard Pratt. Yeah. Which is also a really interesting way for the story to conclude if you think about, if you stick with the idea that these two men are nouveau riche, mm. well, at least Mike is. Yeah. Nouveau riche clinging to these indicators of class and status and culture. Mm-hmm. And that what they have both done is used these indicators of culture in a way that is not much better than warlords, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah. They took this rarefied hobby mm-hmm. and are using it, the one of them is using it to try and kidnap a man's daughter. Yeah. And it is about to maybe descend into blows. Yeah, yeah. These are men who are not capable of overcoming their baser urges, no matter how many off-putting adjectives for wine they can come up with. (laughs) They're still dudes, and they're still clearly kind of pieces of Yeah, and so we also have no idea how they met, right? Does it say... No, we don't. You know, it's like... It's a very sparse little short story. Like, we know exactly what we need to and nothing more. Well, it's interesting that they're trying to impress each other when they really... We have no idea how they even really know each other. You know, it's like, it's just, it's men. (laughs) Again, a dick measuring competition here. Dudes being dudes being dudes being dudes. Which is like, you know, uh, a very age old story that's never going to change, you know, or hopefully, hopefully. But well, you know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like there's always going to be this kind of uh, hyper masculinity. But it's interesting, though, because it's, it's kind of like a. It's in, not in the way that you expect. This is not a story about sports. This is not a story about, right? Uh, you know, s- brawn or strength, uh, physical strength. It's about cheating at a claret tasting contest. <laughs> yeah. And what turns infuriating your wife and daughter for? Well, the wife doesn't seem that mad. The daughters. <sighs> I hope Louise gets out. Yeah, she needs to leave. I was I was gonna okay sorry the story was written you said in 1948, the short story collection was published in 48. Okay, it was first published in the the New Yorker some years before that. I don't remember what year exactly. Okay, I was wondering if perhaps the vintage year of the wine correlated with the birth year of the girl. Oh, you know, just it's an 18 year old wine. It's an 18 year old girl. Oh yeah, well he said the it's 1934. I think. 1934. Yeah, I wonder if there was something significant also with the wine like you know that's the other question here it's like i i'm assuming right. this is a bordeaux you know um I mean, that's what it sounds like uh he said you know i glossed over Chateau it Chateau, something or another he says bordeaux from the commune of saint julien mm-hmm. in the district of medoc yep from chateau branier du cru i bet there's probably an interesting story behind that specific wine too that was why it was chosen i would like i would like to think googling it i would like to think (sighs) i don't know it'd be even funnier if he made it all up though i mean it may be like the most expensive bottle from 1948 you know what i mean like one of the most pricey and you know just to kind of show again status symbol one of the things i was reading about today was that roald dahl was he was sent to the united states to work at the British Embassy mm-hmm. during World War II. He started out as a fighter pilot. He was grievously injured, had to have his whole face reconstructed. Oh, wow. It was a bad time. I didn't realize that. And he wound up ultimately being medically discharged because he just couldn't. Yeah. He, he tried to go back to the front after he 
had his whole face put back together. Oh, my God. But he was still having, like, blinding headaches. It was not great. Yikes. And so he got shipped over to the States in part to kind of make the case for America to get involved in World War II. Yeah. And while he was over there, he, he'd he grown up sort of middle class-ish, like comfortable, but not affluent. And when he got to the States, he was kind of thrown into 1940s America's upper crust, right? He was in the embassy. He was in Washington. He was being wined and dined and he got his first sort of real full face exposure to extreme wealth okay and he was unimpressed yeah he doesn't like that he was covetous Uh but also unimpressed okay and then later in his career back in the uk he wound up also kind of hobnobbing with the creme de la creme as it were wealthy and seems to have consistently found them all sort of morally lacking. Yeah. It's interesting because Dahl was kind of domineering, Mm -hmm. was not great toward the women in his life, Mm -hmm. but this story is so sympathetic to Louise and portrays all of the men as being so useless, especially the narrator right Mm -hmm. one of one of the things i find really interesting here is that the narrator is serving as this kind of archetypal man who if you asked him would say he didn't agree with what was going on Uh but is apparently completely unwilling to do anything yeah there was a third man in the room the whole time you're right who did nothing you're right who instead is narrating the story to us yeah but but absolutely could have stepped in is listed as a character at the dinner. Interesting. Yeah. What did, you know, what's he doing? Nothing. Huh. And that's, I think we all know that guy. Yeah. We've all known a lot of that guy. Yeah. You've got the guy who's betting his daughter. You've got the guy who wants the daughter. And then you've got many, 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 many men who will watch things like that happen and just go, eh. Yeah. I don't have the time. I can't deal with that right now. They'll be like, us. Oh, that's not my problem. It's bad. It's bad that you're doing that. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm not going to do anything about it, but... I I wouldn't think to do anything like that, but you can do whatever you want. Yep. (laughs) So that's nice. Yikes. Yeah, I guess, like, um, this is making me feel all sorts of ways. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah? I want to know more about Roald Dahl now, you know? Like, that was a very good way... You you painted a a good picture, but I want to know... Like, you said he he had... Did he have children? He was married? Did he have children? He was married a couple of times. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh did have children mm-hmm. several children he's an he's a really interesting figure he had a but he, he had no daughters <laughs> did he have any daughters well, so that's, one of the things that's really interesting to me is he was raised by a single mother he had a bunch of sisters he lived with them for oh. substantial chunks of his adult life i kind of get the impression so unfortunately the really comprehensive biography of him the really academic one mm-hmm. is i think out of print or if not, it's, it's very hard to find. I could not get a copy of it in time. Sure. And the biography I did order, and I'm not going to name names because I'm not trying to be mean, but it was just fluffy and hero worshipy yeah. and not very useful and quite frankly, very disorganized. Okay. And so it was really hard to go through it with any kind of efficiency and like sure. get some notes together so yeah, i'm i'm yeah. flying a little loosey goosey no no no, no. this is a very loosey goosey episode for us <laughs> um 
But it's it's funny because he was surrounded by women. He, I think, especially when this story was written, yeah, he kind of hero worshipped his mother. He maybe found her a little stifling, but he loved his. He seems to love his sisters. Yeah, I don't think he had a problem with women with like a capital P. Yeah, but he also was down the line a pretty husband. Uh-huh. And pretty domineering, okay. and and really kind of insisted on running the show. So and, he, and maybe recognized that enough in his personality to reflect himself in one of these characters. Well, this was written long before that. You know what I mean? He's a young he's a young single guy in sure. his in his twenties, thirties at this oh, point. So he's, yeah, so no, he's not married. Yeah, maybe he became the exact guy that he was lampooning. It I, does happen. I'm like maybe he can recognize this about himself. You know, and yeah, maybe he recognized that he had these tendencies and, and doesn't want to be this way, but maybe it kind of turned out that way, yeah. Or, you know, I would say that if you grew up when he grew up, if you are an adult man in the 40s and 50s, mm-hmm. I'm not forgiving anything, but society is so determinedly patriarchal, yeah, that it takes real work to swim against that tide and to not fall lazily into the dynamics that everyone else is living within yeah i think yeah so maybe it's easier said than done to (laughs) you know maybe he saw it as a single person and was like that's gross and then Uh got married and got lazy yeah right and just like couldn't fight the fight yeah interesting what a cool story yeah um it's called taste yeah okay okay huh there's no like for those who who this is a audio medium <laughs> a a, t- a little slippery tongue just got shot at me <laughs> gross it's so gross <laughs> there was no I, I guess they talked a little bit about like the slurping sound mm-hmm. <laughs> that people make and the like the breathing in and slurping oh yeah 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 oh man that's so funny a visceral story oh yeah i know people who have been good friends of mine who get really upset when i slurp the wine they're like just don't do that i'm like i'm aerating it i'm tasting it (laughs) i will admit to not being a huge fan (laughs) i love that i wait noted i knew i wasn't gonna slurp on the microphone that's good yeah now i know i won't slurp in your company i mean it won't like i i I won't die you know (laughs) i won't try to sell you to the next wine aficionado that walks by (laughs) oh wow what a cool okay very fun yeah any do you have i mean this has just been a a fun silly little time we've yeah I, i i think you picked you know given our love of just like catty stories and gossip <laughs> i think you've you've really threaded the needle well here with me picking not only a story that's gossipy but one that's about wine if you were going to do a blind tasting mm. in order to uh win a very attractive <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah uh go ahead go i don't on. know yeah. <laughs> jacket oh a jacket okay I was about to make a much more off-color joke, and then I stopped myself. <laughs> but if if you, if something very important was hanging on the outcome of you getting a blind tasting right, what would the wine be? Yeah, what would the wine be? Like, what would you most <sighs> confidently be well, like? Okay, I can do this. It depends on the person, you know. And so, like, that's that's where I'm like, I want to know how these guys know each other because it's like you pick things that are going to you that you know the other person knows. 
but it's going to stump them, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you don't mm-hmm. you don't want to pick something that they're that they're never going to be able to guess because what fun is that? Right. Well, I mean, their running game is already about claret, so it was pretty... Sh- okay, There's sure. only so many clarets, one imagines. Well... And also, he was cheating the whole time. I think also, I mean, one thing I think that we could probably go back and look, I think pretty much everyone is drinking claret. Like, I mean, there's there's right. like, a, there's a lot of different options out yes. there. You well, know and that's I mean? what they, that's why Mike is so sure that he's going to stump it. Yeah, exactly. But if you, if like, if someone was making you taste the wine, mm-hmm. what wine would you be most confident in your ability to identify oh, oh gosh. blind? I've only successfully blinded things to my surprise <laughs> um a couple times like uh there were a couple years ago i pulled something out of thin air that we were being blinded on and i surprised myself um but i would say again not going down to specific chateau or whatever because again the, when i generally blind wine it's like grape variety region you can guess a producer i guess you could guess a vintage, I guess, but I'm just not that. I'm not that good, you guys. So, I don't know. I would say, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. Well, what wine do I want to be blinded on? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I would say, you know, just anything that I like. So, That's I'm fair. a big fan of French Chardonnay. So, I would say, yeah, something, something Burgundian, or okay. maybe something from the Jura. All right. Well, if we ever need to put you on the spot, now we know. That's the one. All right. Yeah, exactly. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Well, do you have any other questions, thoughts, concerns? Oh, man, I'm going to be thinking about the story all the time now. (laughs) Poor Louise. I hope hope she eventually got to smoke that cigarette. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was interesting. So she she lit up the cigarette and he was like, put that out, girl. He didn't even get as far as light. She didn't even get as far as lighting. Oh, yeah. And and his whole he was disgusted with her. Right. That was the whole he was already starting to take charge of her Mm -hmm. because that was his. I can't abide smoking at the table. It's a disgusting habit. Put that out immediately. Yeah, it was chilling. It's like, ooh, you don't own me, sir. But he wants to. Right. Well, and it really highlights to the in-betweenness of her status in this house because mm-hmm. even then it's not great to scold other people's children. Mm-hmm. They're not treating her like their child anymore, mm-hmm. but neither is she Pratt's romantic part. Like no, it's she's, she's suspended in this kind of liminal space. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he s- shouts at her mm-hmm. and then she listens to him mm-hmm. I think highlights just how sort of unmoored she is in this moment from everyone else in the room like yeah. she's so alone entirely isolated yeah. yeah just so alone except for the maid yeah thank god for the maid who doesn't even get a name <laughs> just the, seven, the pushing 70 maid yeah who's probably Luis's closest friend in that household yeah <laughs> grew up they probably grew up together perhaps yeah that's a, that's a cool story yeah how many pages is that story how oh sh- only a couple yeah this i mean it's a like, short little it's real quick but I, dense i wound up reading you like half of it i think yeah maybe a little bit more it is let's see it starts on page nine and you said that was the first story of that it's the first story in the collection yeah and have you read the rest of the collection like what are the themes of the other stories like, it's like 10 pages long ish yeah i have not finished reading the collection mm-hmm 
I pulled this one out kind of on a whim and then realized it was about wine. I was like, well, I know. I know who this is for. <laughs> this is his first, I think one, I think this is his first short story collection. It's a little macabre, uh-huh. you know. Apparently his, his other short story collection for adults is about a load of failed marriages. Oh, God. <laughs> well, I mean, so like all of his themes that are pretty dark and... Oh, okay. That's James and the Giant Peach just pulling as is whimsical, right? But there's like uh, he's trying to overcome something. Like there's a there's a. Well, one of the things that I think is interesting is uh, people frequently forget just how dark his stuff for children really is. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, like the witches is probably the one that I'm most familiar with. It's it's deeply frightening. Deeply frightening. Yeah. I mean, especially like when the yeah. I mean, again, I'm I've read probably bits and pieces of the of the sh- is that's a sh- short story i guess or is that a book the witches yeah it's, it's a, a novel it's, like it's a, a, it's a novelette. chapter book yeah yeah, yeah. yeah like for kid for kids yeah yes it's a children's chapter book <sighs> but this was written for adults adults like did it was it in hustler or something like that was the it new pu- yorker uh, oh okay so it wasn't published in porno it was published no 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 <laughs> was, yeah no he he wrote several short stories for the new yorker they they quite liked him there for a while okay finally apparently in his earlier career he did better in america than he did in england and I wonder if his sort of quiet contempt for the upper class was part of why uh-huh. they weren't as fond of that. You could get away with in that England. more in the States. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Huh. Mostly because the upper class of America never think of themselves as the upper class. Right, even today. Even today. Especially today. Yeah. Oh, God. Wow, Okay. <laughs> That was fun. Yeah, this has been great. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Thanks so much for joining me. Yes. Well, we have to, you know, blind each other on some wine sometime with lower stakes. Oh, that'd be fun. I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm just gonna say everything is like I don't know, f- flippant and horny. <laughs> I sometimes will talk about certain Chardonnays being slutty. Ooh. And maybe that word is a little too risque for certain accounts and people that I see, I but like this is naughty. I'll start using naughty now. Please don't. <laughs> I'm going to start using naughty. Oh, no. I've created a monster. Be like, this is a flippant, erotic little vintage. <laughs> Please stop me now. This is a nipple hardening Merlot. <laughs> is this why people from hate? From a particularly moist region of the valley. Oh, wow. Pulled out the moist word. Mm. <laughs> uh, what is okay? Last mm, question. Sure. What is the like most off the wall word you think you could get away with using to describe a wine <laughs> without someone calling you on it? Oh, oh my god. I mean, I feel like slutty. <laughs> I think I already mentioned it. I'm like, I feel like that's kind of pushing it. All right. But you've got it. Like, you, now you have to top yourself. But I truly mean that. Like, there's certain times. And I guess when I describe a wine as slutty, I I mean that it's it's flashy. It is showing all the goods. It's not it's not shy. Like, the wine that they describe here, you know, he's talking about it being shy and kind of quiet on the, on the first, you know, but, but like, you know, something that's kind of in your face. But also a slutty wine to me, it's... It's really, it checks all of your boxes. Like it, 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 it tickles all of the things that you need tickled. Um, so like for me, like again, when I was, I, I often love just Burgundy Chardonnay, you know, Poulini Montrachet, and I feel like those wines are 
seductive and homoerotic sometimes kind of slutty yeah or sometimes homoerotic although i try not to um you know he genders the wine he talks about it being feminine yeah no he's got a whole which again there's been a lot of talk about kind of the gendering of wine um and how we should stay away from that which yeah. makes, makes a lot of sense um, because, you know, what makes a, mine, a wine masculine, you know, versus feminine? You could quibble over those things. But um, where was I going with this? Uh, I don't know. I called the wine homoerotic. Homoerotic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, homoerotic can be of any gender. It's just... It can be. Yeah. It, it's, <laughs> I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just... I'm thinking of, like, the same grape varieties. Yeah, exactly. Each other. <laughs> like cab on top of cab. Uh, what? If grapes were having sex, do you think they would have like <laughs> cloacas or? <laughs> I don't even know. Grape on grape action. Grape on grape action. All right. I think that's is, as good a sign as yeah, any that we're done here. <laughs> I think this is, this is definitely devolving. This was definitely not the grapes of wrath. <laughs> It was not, no. So yeah, coming up on the next, didn't read it, <laughs> The Grapes of Wrath. Have you ever read that? Is it terrible? What is it about? The uh, Depression? It's about the Depression, right? Basically, yeah, more or less. <laughs> uh, I haven't read it in years and years. I'm sure we'll wind up talking about it on the podcast at some point. We're talking about it now. Yeah. <laughs> There's grapes. Those grapes are so angry. Grapes, y'all. This, this was the wine podcast. It's grapes, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> all right all right friends michael this has been a blast thank you so much i can't i can't this was awesome this is i been can't great. even is there anywhere that you would like people to find you Ooh, i am on the instagram because i am a millennial i have not yet made a reel uh Ooh. and i am not on tiktok or any of that yeah i will i'm a instagram boy so you can follow <laughs> me there um at mackle smith uh, which I'm sure you can find on the Instagram account at, yeah. at some point. I, we will spelled I'm, funny. I'm sure we'll we'll tag you when we post when yes. we inevitably post something. Yes, and you'll find me using some of these wine descriptions <laughs> at various tastings around town. When go you, go, go lovingly bully Michael yes. about the words he uses to describe wine. If you show up and start describing a wine like a young girl, and I'll and, I, and it <laughs> and it goes completely over my head, I need you to identify yourself as being a podcast listener, please. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> all right well we will we will tag you on the instagram sounds good and uh everyone out there maybe go i don't know go treat yourself to a nice little natural bottle of wine this week and yes uh dis- support a living winemaker yes and <laughs> describe it absurdly and see if anyone stops you yes and actually and just enjoy it right you know yeah sometimes i feel like and this is something that i think needs to be said wine people get a bad rap because we have all of these flowery descriptions and blah 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 blah, blah, blah. and it, it's not that it's not like that people everybody can come to the table and enjoy a glass of wine in the same way even if you have no knowledge of it um just enjoy it right it's not that serious it's not that serious just enjoy you know that's that's very much my attitude uh about books and literature right it's not it's not that serious just read what you like yeah drink some nice wine yeah call it a day don't get too worried about it exactly don't start auctioning your children off please don't uh, because your pride has been wounded. <laughs> Maybe everyone just chill out. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. I love it. Well, 
Thank you all so much for being here with us, for coming on this adventure, me and Michael. I hope you have a wonderful week. We will be back next week. I'm not sure with what yet, but it will happen. (laughs) Someone's going to read something. Someone's going to read something. Uh, And as always, if you can, this week, this month, this pay period, consider supporting a living author or a living winemaker because they could sure use the love. Bye. Bye.